Have you been stressed, anxious, or worried? Have you felt pangs of loneliness in recent times? Are you longing for greater connection with others in the world around you? In a phrase, are you looking for happiness? You are not alone. Millions of others are seeking this feeling of spiritual, mental, and physical wellness too. This podcast explores the underlying causes of unhappiness and shares with us the secrets of rewriting the frequent thoughts and redirecting the common behaviors that keep us in that state. Join forensic psychologist and best-selling author Dr. Nihal and her guests as they dive deep in the realm of psychological wellness and explore ways of finding happiness on demand. For our listeners, I'd just like to let you guys know how excited I am to have this wonderful licensed therapist with us today, Jill. Jill McMahon, let me tell you a little bit about her claim to fame, shall we say, because she is brilliant. And I will tell you something on a personal level. I bumped into her actually in a fitness center. She was actually our spin instructor, believe it or not, and she had me spinning. But when I got to know a little bit more about this woman's deep dive on grief, I was really excited to have her on board. So here's a little bit about her. We all like a bit of gossip, don't we? So she's a licensed professional counselor. She works here in the desert in Scottsdale. She owns her own private practice. Her area of expertise is on survivors of suicide since 2003. And she also works with grief as such. She can be found providing suicide prevention presentations and trainings around the community, as well as speaking about survivors of suicide and complicated grief nationally and internationally. She's been featured on several podcasts, and we want to welcome her to ours entitled Happiness on Demand. And she has co-authored books and also several publications. So we're in great hands today. You know this, huh? So without further ado, Jill, welcome. Well, hi. Thank you for having me. It means the world. I mean that. Thank you. We're very excited to have you on board because we know you're talking about grief. And in this era of uncertainty, as I say, Mm. I think you have a lot to tell us about grief. So. Mm. Well, it's it, it's interesting. While you were introdu- introducing me, um, you know, it didn't fall on deaf ears for me that this is a happiness podcast, and we're going to tackle the topic of grief. And I think that's lovely, Joan, because I I am a firm believer that grief is a part of the human experience. Grief is, you know, that shadow that that everybody meets during their lifetime, yet it's one of those things that we fear the most and that we avoid the most. So, you know, it is, I do think that this is important. I do think that this pairing is symbiotic in some ways because you have to experience grief and go through grief in order to experience true happiness. In fact, if we repress grief, mm-hmm. I think it'll manifest itself in other ways and detract from our resilience, huh? Absolutely. 100%. So, you know, I'm a firm believer in repressing grief and what I say, filling your trash can, right? Stuffing it down, stuffing it down day after day, month, some of my clients for years, what that does eventually is it creates disease, it is, it is not only harmful to your mind and your happiness and your inner peace, it is harmful to your body. So um, I'm, we're seeing that more and more these days because um, many of us were raised in 
a family environment or just in an age where we were told just to pull our bootstraps up and keep going, right? One foot in front of the other. And whereas I I acknowledge the importance of that attitude to some extent, it is almost just as important, if not more important, to clean your closet. Take care of your business, take care of your mind, your soul, you know, clean it out so that you can get up the next day and keep going. So we just came out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people became aware of grief and the multi layers of grief. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and how it became complicated grief? And what that means for you. Well, I know everybody has heard this, but I'm going to say it again, hopefully in a different context. The pandemic has changed our lives forever. Specifically in our awareness of mental health. So my field, our field, Joan, we have become exceedingly busy in the years post pandemic. And that's that's not a problem. It's actually a great thing, right? Anybody now who is looking to clean out that trash can or or clean that mental closet because they spent two years of their lives sitting with themselves and sitting with their past and sitting with their traumas, maybe they discovered for the first time in their lives that they really have been experiencing anxiety. They're looking for assistance and it's more acceptable now than it's ever been acceptable in our lifetime. However, trying to find a counselor right now, you're you're going to wait a good one month to six weeks to get in to see anybody. Again, I say that's a blessing because I would rather that people have an awareness and are taking steps to do what they need to do to find health and happiness again. Um Complicated grief is an interesting term. In our field, it's also quite controversial. A few years ago, the concept of complicated grief was introduced in the DSM, the diagnostic manual that all of us mental health providers use. It's somewhat our Bible when we go to um, bill for insurance purposes and diagnose and and all of those things. I'm actually not a huge fan of of diagnosing in general. However, complicated grief usually is in response to some type of trauma. You know, traditional grief is going to last anywhere. I know this will sound silly, so stick with me. But traditional grief is going to last anywhere from two weeks to two months. Complicated grief is just this heaviness, this inability to catch your breath, this feeling that you can never get out from under it, no matter what you try, which tricks of the trades, how many meditations you do, and it can last up to a year or two. So we are seeing more complicated grief than we have before. Complicated grief was traditionally associated with combat, uh, traumatic loss of some type, homicide, vehicular death, suicide, but we're witnessing more and more complicated grief now. And, you know, to wrap it up this question, but to answer a question that you said previously, you had mentioned previously, people are realizing that the events of their childhood that they have been avoiding 
are now catching up with them, right? You may be 55 years old and you've never really dealt with your brother's death when you were seven or the fact that your mom walked out on your dad when you were 11 and you were told to keep your chin up and keep walking. It's not cleaning house, right? So it's caught up with you. And and to some for some of those um, community members that could now have turned into complicated grief. Hmm. So we look at this and I guess I'm interested in what Corey Keyes talks about when he talks about languishing as one of the phenomena that we are now seeing today. And uh, Pauline Boss, when she talks about ambiguous grief, you know, and how those things affect our listeners today. So if we switch the lens now on our listeners, what advice as an expert would you give them? And on two levels, okay? One grief, but then I would like you to talk when when you've done with the grief bit. I want to open up the floor to your area of expertise, namely survivors of suicide, for example. Well, some some nuggets you want to share with them as they wait impatiently for counseling. That, that's a that's the great lead in as they're waiting patiently for counseling, right? Regarding the audience that's that's tuning in or has chosen this podcast of interest for them today and and some advice regarding grief, I would say now is the time. It's not too late. You know, I um oftentimes liken trauma or grief to the boogeyman. And I like to make it visual for my clients. So, you know, When I say boogeyman, I envision the 1970s, 1980s, scary Halloween movies where you and I can see it, Joan. There's always a bad guy outside, right? He's always looming outside. And what happens every single time in those movies? The babysitter's inside and she's getting the kids to safety and she's running upstairs and she's hiding under the bed and she's locking the door. Inevitably... The boogeyman always makes it in. So what would happen if we took control and we took charge and we went to the door and we opened the door and we said, can we help you? Can I help you? The amount of power that you take back just in that act alone. So bring that into today's scenario. If you have been hurting and you feel like you should be over it by now or that nobody understands you or you find yourself crying, you know, which is great and beautiful and so healthy. But if it is a situation that has gone unresolved for you for too long now, open the door and say hello to the boogeyman because he's going to seep in either way. So try to take some control and um, regain your sense of autonomy and and start living your future today. That would be my number one piece of advice for anybody that feels that they have experienced some um, languishing, languishing grief, for sure. Now, my specialty for the last 20 years has been working specifically with survivors of suicide. And I know that not everybody is necessarily familiar with that term. A survivor of suicide is not somebody that has lived after an attempt. A survivor of suicide is a friend or family member that is left behind after someone that they cared about died by suicide, which is which is the appropriate term these days. We don't use the term um, 
committed suicide any longer. And wow, you want to talk about complicated grief. There is so much trauma often associated with a suicide loss and most definitely complicated grief associated with a suicide loss. And what I'm going to be sharing with our listeners after we've had our wonderful visit with you today is I'm going to dive deep into guilt and a psychological dive with my listeners. And as a segue into that, I was going to ask you, Jill, if you would be kind enough to tell us a little bit about survivor's guilt, because that's one layer of guilt. And I love that you are going to be addressing that topic, Joan. That couldn't be any more appropriate for what we're discussing today. So much of my work has been centered around two things when it comes to survivors of suicide, shame and guilt. So that is what makes this loss different, right? Of course, we have stigma, social misunderstanding. We're getting so much better. However, we have a long way to go. But it is the shame associated with the death to suicide. And it is the guilt that seeps into every fiber of our being that makes this loss so much more challenging to overcome, right? It is absolutely possible, but it's important to acknowledge that what you're experiencing is not what other people are experiencing. And I don't often see that survivors have a hard time understanding that. Um, by the time I meet them or see them, and sometimes that's immediately, I have been on the scene of several suicides. I have worked with families immediately after a death, and I have worked with families 10 or 20 years after a death. And I will tell you resoundingly, the most common theme is I feel isolated and all alone. I don't feel like anybody understands. Everybody wants to compare my son's suicide to losing their uncle to a heart attack. And with each one of those statements or comments, which I believe are meant to be comforting, that survivor is reminded over and over again how much the world just doesn't understand what they're experiencing. So very often, um, a friend or family member will feel this heavy blanket of guilt, right? The should have, would have, could have, the what could I have done differently? I shouldn't have gone out for groceries that day. I should have returned his phone call. Um, I met this beautiful young girl, 16 years old. Her mom called me a few years back, hadn't known them. They looked me up on the internet, had, had seen what I did for a living. And um, mom called and said, my daughter's at home. She lost a classmate to suicide two days ago. I don't really understand their relationship because they weren't really friends, but I cannot seem to get her out of bed. Can I ask you to speak with her today if I can get her to call you? And I said, absolutely. Had never met this young, this young lady before. She calls me and says, I've known Thomas since we were in second grade. We were not friends. I cannot tell you the last time that I spoke with him. But I am riddled with guilt because all I can think is that if I would have smiled at him more, maybe he would be alive today. 
if that isn't representative, I mean, that's the tip of an iceberg. This is a young lady who did not lose her best friend, did not lose her boyfriend, did not lose a teammate. She lost a boy who was in her chemistry class, whom she hardly knew. And she was walking around with the guilt that had she smiled at him more often, maybe she could have saved his life. So I just want you to think about that in relationship to a best friend, a boyfriend, a parent, or a next door neighbor. Guilt associated with loss to suicide um, runs rampant. And it's part of what makes overcoming that trauma and that loss so complicated. And you've got specific interventions you use with your clients to help them with this? First and foremost, to be honest with you, I give them time. And that isn't often what my clients want to hear, right? I am cognizant enough to know that when somebody experiences a loss to suicide, that they've experienced a trauma. And so I think we have to wait until the crisis settles. You know, it's like anything else. You break you break an arm, you're not going to have surgery to reset it until the swelling goes down. So you need to let the response keep that person safe and let the response from that trauma settle. And then we go into talking about the shame and the guilt. So DBT and CBT are very um, effective when it comes to working through guilt, the guilt related to a trauma. Oftentimes, as I said earlier, time sorts it out, right? What I notice is that immediately after after a loss to suicide, there is this recording that goes on in the head. And again, it's um, if I wouldn't have told my 18 year old that he had to move out of the house, it's clearly my fault. I'm a horrible mother. I didn't need to tell him it was time to go. He could have stayed as long as he wanted. It's my fault, right? You can insert that scenario into almost any suicide, but it takes time for them to step back from the event, to step back from the act, to step back from the death and to examine it from a different lens, right? And so I wouldn't use any modalities right away. Um, working with survivors of su suicide is very different because you don't rush in. It's, it's a long-term relationship most of the time. You don't rush in. What you do at first is crisis work. And that crisis work typically lasts a year. Go ahead, Joan, I'm sorry. Important because I think our listeners need to hear your approach and, and they need for them to hear what you're saying because it's very important. What you do is you, you're holding them in, a, in an yeah. embrace, a warm embrace, if you will, of time, the gift of time, where our society is hurry up, chop, chop, let's get mm -hmm. it done. And you're doing the opposite. And I think our listeners need to be aware of what, the impact of what you're saying. I love that you just brought that up. More and more have said to me that after three months, four months or six months, their extended family members are calling them and saying, I just want the old Kathy back. Or the boss is calling six months later and saying, you know, I'm really sorry about the loss in your family, but I need your productivity. 
And I need you to be, I know you're still in there. You got this. I need you to be who you were before. And I will tell you for a survivor or somebody who has lost somebody dear to them to suicide, they don't feel remotely the same. Mm -hmm. They will, they will, but they don't for a year or two. Now I actually hesitate to say that publicly on this podcast, um, because I would never voice that to a client soon after a loss to suicide. Because if I said to a mother or a girlfriend or a best friend that they are going to be in this much psych ache is what we call it, or this much distress for two years, that would be hopeless. It would be unfathomable. It would be worse. They couldn't so, you know, I don't say that immediately. I do exactly what you just said. I just sit with them patiently. I hold space with them. I allow them to empty their trash can in front of me session after session. And if we have to repeat the same story 900 times, that's called flooding, we will repeat the same story 900 times because part of the complicated grief associated with suicide is that these family members and these friends don't feel like they can talk about the act of suicide out in their community or to their next door neighbor, right? So just providing that safe space to them where they can flood and repeat and process, gosh, honestly, Joan, for probably a year. That is, that is a tactic and a technique all in of itself. Not trying to divert them, not trying to change the subject, not saying, yeah, but, right? We're six months in, Mr. Jones. So, but by now, you shouldn't be feeling this deep sense of longing. You shouldn't be feeling this deep sense of regret. I would never. And I think what you're also saying to our listeners is that while you hold them in this warm embrace of empathy, each person is different in their yes. response. So just so that our audience not misconstrue what you're saying, you're saying this could be the average life span of time, and it may be less, it might be more. Right. That's Correct. what you're saying, right? Correct. I just wanted to make sure our audience understood what you're saying. And and I appreciate that. I, I do almost always hesitate to put a timeline on it. And it is one of those things, you know, when somebody's in that much distress and that much pain, they will come in immediately and go, Jill, mm -hmm. tell, me, tell me what to do. And how long am I going to feel like this? And I can't answer either one of those questions. So yes, Joan, you're absolutely, you know, I'm giving an average of what I've seen in my 20, 20 year work. I have some clients that I work with for three months and that's all they need. That's all they need because they have a strong support system and, you know, they have, they're going to, they're going to groups outside of their work with me, or they came from a really strong foundation or they have incredible coping skills, you know, prior to this traumatic loss. Or maybe to use your metaphor of the trash can, then they're into trash and they trashed it out before they yes. saw it. <laughs> yes. No, seriously. Yes. That that's also a part of it. So I hope uh, I hope our listeners can gain from what you're saying. I think this is such an important nugget that you're sharing with us that grief doesn't have a time 
on it. There are no shoulds on it. And what we need to do is to listen to what Jill has just taught us, the importance of that holding embrace that is non-judgmental, that is there for you, in which you can express your guilt, your feelings of inadequacy, your irrational thoughts, and not be thrown into the trash can. Beautiful. 100%. As we, as we close, is there anything else you'd like to share? I think this is so important what you've shared, and I'm very grateful to you for sharing it with us. Well, my friend, um, you've given me a platform to, to share some of these ideas. And, you know, I will speak to anybody who is willing and or interested to hear about this specific loss. It is different. And it is complicated and it is very isolating and it can be very lonely. So the more that I get the opportunity to speak about survivor grief, um, grief related to trauma, the more I feel like I am educating the caregivers for those individuals, right? If we all had a better understanding for what their landscape looks like, maybe we could help to usher them through this difficult time and time of life. I'm, I am truly um, humbled that you allowed me to come and share today. It's my pleasure and privilege. Now, look, we started with a concept of grief, and we started with a concept that uh, different people respond in different ways. And I think your point, which was a really good point, was that uh, thanks to the pandemic, we've all changed. We've all gone through grief in a different way. And I think the point that we need to underscore is that while we've changed, this change gives us a boost in terms of our resilience, our coping mechanisms, and helps us to move into a different way of looking at life, a way in which there's more appreciation, more growth, and in fact, more happiness. Post-traumatic growth is real. Right. And I don't know if all of your listeners have heard that term, and I would invite them to look it up if they don't know it. We did a podcast on it already. You did. Po okay. Post traumatic growth is beautiful, and it is something that we can all experience. And I will tell you, there is a different version of you on the other side. It may not be the same version, it may be a better version in some ways, believe it or not. Um, change is scary but it is also a part of life and what it can create for us is new growth a new sense of self and new passion. So out of, you know, my private practice, when I named it is spring returns and I named it spring returns on purpose because every season or every winter that the trees die in the spring, they also bud again and they come back. And to me, grief and loss and trauma and even guilt all model after that tree where the leaves fall off and it buds again and it's going to look different each season, maybe smaller some seasons and it may be blooming and huge and create, you know, shade for the entire neighborhood in other seasons doing your work will produce a different you that you can be proud of. So Victor Frankl talks about tragic optimism. So I like the idea of uh, putting closure on what you've shared with his words without 
hope there is no meaning without me. Mm -hmm. And I just want to express to you my deep appreciation for you sharing with our listeners your nuggets of wisdom. Thank you. My friend, thank you for trusting me. Anytime. Okay. Bye now. Thank you for joining this discussion on happiness. We hope this helps to inspire you to lead a more joyful life. To dive deeper into the subject of happiness, be sure to check out Dr. Nihal's book, Happy is the New Healthy, available as an ebook or hardcover. For additional resources, visit our website at drnihal.com. Until next time, stay happy.